You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Employee Safety Podcast. I'm Peter Steinfeld. As some of you may know, May 21st is National American Red Cross Founders Day. This year, they're celebrating their 140th anniversary, which is quite incredible. So what better guest to invite on today's show than Jennifer Pippa, the Vice President of Disaster Preparedness at the American Red Cross. Jennifer supports the development, implementation, and continuous improvement of nationwide disaster services programs. She's been with the organization for 18 years and has a tremendous amount of experience in preparedness, response, and recovery. In this episode, Jennifer talks about how her team keeps thousands of volunteers and employees safe so they can continue to assist disaster victims. She also provides specific advice for emergency managers on how to improve their current processes and procedures. You don't want to miss this episode. Let's get started. Jennifer, tell us just a little bit about your role and responsibilities at American Red Cross. So in my role, I am responsible for all of our disaster programs, which means when you see us on large scale disaster relief operations, I support a team at national headquarters and we develop those programs and how we deliver the Red Cross mission each and every day. And that's regardless of whether it's a hurricane or a wildfire or a flood or even a single family house fire, which is our, our most prevalent disaster, the one we respond to about 60,000 times a year. And we're unique in disaster cycle services in American Red Cross in that I co-lead disaster with a partner. Uh, his name's Brad Kaiserman. He's the vice president of operations and logistics. So after our team has developed the programs, Brad's team actually implements and executes them on the large-scale disaster relief operations. So we're kind of like a yin and a yang, if you will, both working together to deliver the mission across the 50 regions for the U.S. And I've, I've been doing that. I've just been in this fairly recent new role for me. I've been in here just a year now, but uh, spent a lot of time with the organization prior to taking this job back in Washington, D.C. You know, I didn't know that. So you guys actually do respond to individual house fires and things that will reach out to, to people on an individual basis or an individual family as opposed to a large scale disaster. That is true. We call those our silent disasters because they're the ones people never see about, never hear about. But the fact of the matter is whether you lost your house in a tornado or a wildfire or whether you lost your home in just a single individual house fire, you've lost your home. Your, your needs are actually the same. So we're uniquely positioned because of our structure and our, our 50 regions and all of the volunteers that deliver the Red Cross mission that we're able to be there for a single family at two o'clock in the morning on their front yard, or we're able to be there when there's 250 families who need a safe place to stay because they've had a tornado touchdown in their local community. So it's a very unique, scalable kind of program that allows us to meet our clients exactly where they are at that moment and make sure that we're taking care of the needs that they have that were caused because of this disaster. Wow, that's really fantastic. Well, I know you've been with the organization for about 18 years now. What's your favorite part of the job or what motivates you to keep doing this kind of work? So my favorite part changes all the time. They, they 
we talk a lot about there's a reason why I joined and there's a reason why I stay. And the reason why I joined has always been the same. I was a mom at home with a toddler. I was looking for some way to help my community. And I was a Red Cross blood donor. So I thought, well, I'll check out the Red Cross and see you know, what's going on there. And that's when they showed me this, this home fire response, which is where you can sign up for a shift overnight and respond to help families who have no place else to go. So I took a little bit of training, signed up. I did the 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift. So wow. my husband would be home with our daughter, right? So I was able to go out in the middle of the night. And I, I will, for as long as I live, I will never forget the first family that I helped. It was a, a mom and dad and two small children. And by the end, the mom was in tears because she was overwhelmed with the help that we could provide. I was in tears because I just felt honored to be able to help somebody in their their toughest moment, it forever changed me as a person. And so that that's what introduced me to the Red Cross as a volunteer. What keeps me going, it changes all the time. I was in Kentucky after the tornadoes that occurred right before Christmas. And you walk into a room and you see 300 strangers who have volunteered to get on a plane, fly across the country right before or during Christmas to help strangers they've never met and sleep in a strange place and, and not know, you know, what your next day is going to look like. That, that is the heart of the volunteer who comes and raises their hand. And it is an incredibly touching experience to see all of these people with, you know, just fantastic hearts there to help and make sure that that community can begin to recover. And so every time I get a chance to, to go out and see that, that volunteerism spirit kind of just be so present and overwhelming at that moment in time, it reminds me why I get up every morning and, and, and do what I need to do to make sure that we've got volunteers that can actually go out there and deliver the Red Cross mission. Well, speaking of volunteers, how many do you typically work with in your nationwide disaster services programs? And how do you go about keeping them safe so they can continue to help others? So we have hundreds of thousands of volunteers with the American Red Cross, and we've got you know tens of thousands that specifically help us in disasters, whether that's responding to large-scale disasters like getting on a plane or whether that's responding in their backyard to help their local neighbor who's been at, impacted. And it's been challenging, especially in the last two and a half years uh, with the advent of COVID, uh, social distancing, additional masking protocols, making sure that we kept our folks, our volunteers safe, as well as the clients that we were serving, those individual families safe, was incredibly challenging for us. And we, we used a lot of technology. We tried a lot of things, some of which worked, some of which did not. But we, we really made sure that that was the most important thing. And we were able to deliver the mission, maybe not exactly in the way that our volunteers were used to doing it because they're used to giving hugs. So it's a little it's a little challenging to do that in a COVID environment, but making sure that we consistently kept our volunteers informed about why we were making the decisions we were making, how we were protecting them, how we were protecting our our families and individuals really was the first spot of every single conversation we had over the last two and a half years as we've kind of navigated this, this complex system in disaster response and in an endemic environment. Yeah, without a doubt. I've talked to a lot of organizations recently, and they've had to pivot quite substantially in response to COVID. Are there other things that you'd changed in your interaction with your volunteers, with the people you help, or internally in the organization that perhaps you could share that other people would say, wow, that's that's great. We could take advantage of that too. It was. It's interesting. You know, One of the things that we're known for on large-scale disaster relief operations is sheltering. And so you think about 
community centers and high school gyms, and you think about cots that are, let's be honest, less than six feet between them, right? So yeah. it, it, it kind of flies in the concept of social distancing and mask wearing. And so during the initial probably 18 months of the pandemic, we made a decision that if we could, we were going to put our families that were impacted by disaster in hotels, um, which is a completely different concept for us because we're used to large scale sheltering footprints. And we did that because we knew that that was the safest way to protect both our volunteers and the folks that we were serving. Worked really, really well. There's obviously some complexity there because in a shelter, you can count noses in one big room. Whereas when you put them in hotels, everybody's in their own individual room. But at the same time, we knew that that was the right measure to take. Yeah. Now, one of the main things that you guys really have to do is get people shelter very quickly, whereas a lot of organizations go through the disasters and they don't necessarily have to worry about that, but occasionally they do. So what could those organizations learn from you about being proactive, about lining up additional space for whatever it might mean, housing people in a hotel, talking to a local school, convention center, I mean, anything, extra business space they can work out of, data center space. What are some good lessons learned that you can offer? So we've learned to be very creative. You you never know where you can find a shelter, but relationships are really the key and the heart of, of everything that we do. And so you have to be connected in your local community. You have to know your local community leaders, trusted community advocates to be able to connect immediately and say, hey, you know, we're going to need to take care of, you know, 200 you know, folks or, you know, 75 families. And, and do you have space that we could, we could use to do that? Having that simple relationship ahead of time really makes all the difference. The, the thing that we say all the time in the disaster world is the one thing you can't get back in a disaster is time. And so any relationships you have that get us quicker to the moment in time where we are taking care of a family that's been impacted, it, definitely is a better outcome for the family, for the organization, for the community. And so knowing that ahead of time, kind of specking areas out. Weather forecasting is getting so much more accurate now, right? You're even seeing things where they say that there's a high likelihood of tornadoes that could potentially come through. If you know where those are, then you can pre-identify those relationships. You can even call some of those folks ahead of time and say, hey, if something happens tonight, Will you be around? Can I give you a call so that you can unlock the community center or the local gym or faith-based partners? They're, they're a huge component of us. A lot of times they'll have community rooms that they'll allow us to use to shelter their uh, individuals and their families and their communities as well. So being weather aware at the same time in, in reaching out and connecting with partners, huge, huge piece of really being successful at the very onset of a disaster. And then communication telling everybody where those shelters are. Information is the most valuable currency for those first 48 to 72 hours of a disaster. As someone who's impacted, you wanna know how bad it is, where you can go for help, where you can go to find a, a shower or to charge your electronics or whatever. And so making sure that we're communicating out through a wide variety of channels to let folks know where, if they need to get connected with help, that help is present in their community. Interesting. And, and when you think about communication, does it extend beyond 
your volunteers to employees, the people that you're working with, really all around, just keeping everything coordinated. It, it is. And communication is one of those things that, you know, every time you do an after action report, a communication always comes up as one of the things you could do better. It's always, mm. always kind of a continuous improvement cycle, if you will. And making sure that you're just communicating with as many people as you can, understanding that some of the channels you might have traditionally used are now compromised. And so, how else do you get that out? And sometimes it's really simple things like posting a poster or putting a flyer. We've used garbage collectors, right? Who put flyers on tops of people's trash cans, right? They know the oh, neighborhood wow. the best. So if we're opening up a shelter or a center where people can get help, that's just a really simplistic, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to get to the person that needs that information. And so we, we can be pretty creative at times about how we make sure that folks know where they can get help and not just Red Cross help. Right. Our, we are one small part of a much bigger relief operation when a community is impacted. So it's incumbent on us not just to share where you can get Red Cross help, but where you can connect with state and federal resources, with other local nonprofits, to make sure that we're helping that community navigate all of the options they have to begin their recovery journey. In your opinion, what are the biggest takeaways for organizations in terms of just being ready for disasters or being able to respond or recovery in general? I, I think honesty and transparency are critical. And so there are going to be times when folks think you can do something and you can't. We saw this in COVID a lot. Some of our smaller nonprofit partners just weren't able to respond in the way that they historically have because their workforce may not be willing to deploy or because their workforce has degraded over time because people are choosing to stay home instead of go out, right? I mean, you're asking somebody to get on a plane, travel to a, a strange place, potentially sleep in a staff shelter. That's a lot of it's a lot of risk you're asking a volunteer to take. And while we're really incredibly lucky with the dedicated volunteers that we have, and we have a, enough of them that we could continue to deliver the mission, that's not always the, the way that things work, especially in a smaller nonprofit. So understanding where everybody is in that moment in time and what kind of mission they can deliver and being really, really clear and deliberate about that is a huge one. I think the other thing is letting your folks know where you are in the process. One of the things we were really, really transparent about to our volunteers and our workforce is this is the information that we know at this moment in time. And this is the decision we're making because of it. And when that information changed, it was time for us to come back and say, the information has changed and we've moved on. COVID and, and the different strains of the virus were a perfect example. There were two points in time where we were ready to go back to in-person, where we were really ready to kind of throw up in our doors and say, we're back to normal. It's time to get back. And we even had, we were moving in that direction. And then you had a variant of that virus come up that, that kind of said, nope, we're, we're a little ahead of the curve here. We need to kind of stop. We need to go back. We need to come back to some more additional protective measures. So being really clear with folks about saying at this moment in time, we think we're going to be able to go back to in-person mission delivery across the whole organization. And then having, say, an Omicron variant come up and say, yep, now with this one, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to pause, we're going to back up a little bit, and then we'll see once this clears what our next steps are. But just being honest and transparent with your workforce, whether it's volunteer or employees, and saying, 
you know, we're going to try and get in disaster, we use the term directionally correct. We want to head in the right direction, but then be able to pivot when the need indicates. And that's critical. And, and it establishes a trust with the workforce that you're sending out that you, we do, we, we do want to be protective. We want to have their best interests at heart when we're making decisions. And so we're going to make the best decision. And if that means we need to backtrack and change that decision a little bit, then we're okay with that. We're just going to explain the why behind it so that everybody understands. Well, following on that track of communications, you guys have been involved in so many disasters and emergencies over the years. What are some of the do's and don'ts of effective communication that you would recommend? And we could probably go on for three hours about this or longer, <laughs> but in just a few like seconds or minutes, like what would you say are the biggest ones? No, I, I think there's a lot you can do. Proactive communication is always critical. And the same message time and time again, especially during a crisis, people don't always hear and absorb the first time you've given a message, right? So our standard is five to seven times you're repeating the same message so that people can hear it. For us on disaster relief operations, our volunteers rotate out. We ask them to deploy for two, two and a half, sometimes three weeks. But as an employee, you may be there longer. So you have to remember that the volunteer you're talking to today may actually be their third day on this operation versus a volunteer that's been there two weeks. So remembering that mindset in that you're going to have to repeat yourself to those volunteers as well is a critical one. The flaws are assuming, assuming somebody knows what you're doing, assuming that they understand what the situation is and assuming that they're doing something that they maybe haven't told you. All of those will get you in a lot of hot water very, very quickly and can compromise our ability to take care of that community. And that's obviously the thing we don't want at all. The other one is, and, and it seems simple, but it can be very challenging in a disaster environment is assume positive intent. If somebody's doing something Sometimes, especially in a disaster where it's chaotic and it's fast paced, you can catch yourself in this internal narrative saying, well, what were they thinking when they did that, right? It's so easy to jump to that where instead of saying, you know, I bet they were just trying to help a family and maybe they could have made a different decision, but their heart was in the right place. They had positive intent. So how do we just make a quick tweak here and get back to helping that family? And like I said, it feels very simple, but when you're tired and you're running on adrenaline and you're the third weekend, it takes some practice and some patience in order to continue to do that. Oh, that's excellent advice. Do you have any other really specific tips or advice for emergency managers or crisis managers on how to improve their programs in general? I'll tell you what, what we have seen since probably about 2016 is our tempo of disasters has increased significantly. And it, it used to be these large-scale disasters were, were kind of like an acute issue. It just show up one time and you go out and you take care of that community. And then you come back and you'd rest your, your volunteers and you'd be ready for the next one. And what we've seen since 2016 is a steady uptick in large-scale disasters that are impacting our communities. And so what has become kind of this once or episodic has now become this chronic issue where we are responding to large scale disaster impacts about once every 12 to 18 days. That, wow. that is a tempo that, that if you'd asked us in 2016 or 2017, we would have never, it would have never even occurred to us that we'd, we'd be at that place. And so 
you can't run a business the same way. You, you, you can't do disaster relief on these really kind of episodic responses when you get to a chronic kind of constant, always responding mode. And so as an organization, we've spent the last year or so thinking through how do we still deliver the Red Cross mission, but deliver it in a way that understands that we are in a chronic response mode now. And what does that mean to our volunteers and how do we still take care of our communities in the same way, but at the same time, make sure that we're ready for the next community that's gonna be impacted because we know at this point, it's not a, a question of if, it's a question of when. And so really taking a hard look at how we deliver our mission and how we can do things differently to help us manage that kind of chronic drumbeat that we're seeing now in disaster response. I think emergency management across the whole U.S. is feeling that. Um, folks are feeling overwhelmed. We see a lot of burnout. And so it's, it is, it's our responsibilities as leaders in emergency management to make sure we're thinking through that and figuring out how we do that differently moving forward. And I think Anybody who isn't already thinking has probably already lost some valuable time, and, and I would highly encourage them to start thinking about it immediately and thinking about what kinds of interventions you can do now. This hurricane season is a perfect example, right? They've already forecasted an above average hurricane season. So we know that we know storms are more intense. They're longer in duration. Our hurricane season seems to start earlier and earlier every year. Mother Nature no longer believes in, it, in adhering to the calendar, which says June 1st is the start of hurricane season. The last couple of years, we've spun up a name storm in May. And then our wildfire season, which typically was the tail end of our hurricane season, right? Happened in October and November on the West Coast. Well, right now the center of the U.S. is on fire. We have massive wildfires in Texas, Colorado is under some watches. If you look at the fire watch map right now, half of the central U.S. is red for red flag warnings. Fire, wildfire season is going to run concurrently with hurricane season. Now, those are no longer two separate entities that you can schedule against. We have to be ready to respond to both at the exact same time on different sides of the U.S., well, you guys certainly can't do it alone. And I know you have a lot of individual volunteers that help out, but how can organizations work with the American Red Cross to support disaster preparedness or recovery just in their communities in general? So we have chapters all over the U.S. And so they can always raise their hands individually or they can raise their hands as teams. If you want to help in your local community, even on these disaster action teams, which are those folks that respond to these single family fires, they go out in pairs or, or three folks. So, you know, this could be you and two coworkers if you're in a in a company that's you know service driven and wants to help um, or it could be you and your friends so there's there's a ton of opportunities some of which are unpredictable like disasters um, as much as we'd like to schedule our disasters so we know when they're coming mother nature doesn't always accommodate us we have a lot of preparedness activities and recovery activities that you can sign up for and say i'd like to do something on a a Saturday afternoon that I think is fulfilling. And we, we install free smoke alarms into people's homes who are at risk for single family fires and death and injury due to those things. And so there's some great opportunities that are both for those, those folks who like to plan their days and then for the ones who like to a little bit of chaos, they can come over to you know the response side of disaster and, and be challenged in ways they probably would have never imagined to kind of raise their hand and, and, and help us respond and take care of their local community members. And even if you don't, want to volunteer with the Red Cross, you know, something happens in your community, just check on your neighbors. Just go knock next door. I, I know we spent the last, you know, two, two and a half years not visiting our neighbors because we've been <laughs> right. told to be safe, right? But 
you can just do something as simple as that after a disaster and make sure that your folks next door are okay. You don't have to be a Red Cross volunteer to do that. You just have to have a humanitarian spirit. Are there particular organizations that the American Red Cross would like to hear from more proactively? Like, for example, clearly in, a, in a, an emergency, you need people who can supply bottled water or shelter or things like that. So you'll take help from anybody, but are there certain organizations you're like, please, if you would come visit us, knock on our door a little bit more often and before the disaster strikes, that'd be great. It'd be fantastic to meet you. Yeah. So I, I think those are the, those are the keys. And like we said before, it's no one organization that does disaster relief, right? It, it is a strong network. And the more local the network, the better the outcome for that community because they know everybody in their own community, right? So if we have a caseworker helping a local family, but they're familiar with the local food bank and the local thrift store and the, the, the social service agencies, right? They're gonna make those immediate connections for the family that they're helping. Our folks will fly in from anywhere and, and we've got great casework skills, but they're not going to give that intangible of a local kind of understanding and knowledge. And so you kind of have to, you have to have that big mindset where you bring people in and you train them ahead of time, but you also have to have that very agile mindset where you say, Hey, this is great. Just come on in. We're going to figure out what you do. And then we're going to plug you in. So you see what everybody else is doing. And that way you get the information too, right? Road closures, power restoration, what the needs are of the community. Because when we're in a shelter, we're talking to all of our, our individuals, What's keeping you from returning? Is your house, does it not have a roof? Are you just simply without power, right? Whatever those barriers are will tell us when you can start your recovery journey. And we can share that with partners so that they understand what the unmet needs of those folks are going to be as we continue to move through the response phase. Yeah, that local approach is just so valuable. It is, mm. it is. Well, does the American Red Cross have any special events or initiatives in honor of World Red Cross Day or National American Red Cross Founders Day? So Red Cross has Clara Barton, who is an, an amazing female leader and a thrifty one at that. I, I visited her <laughs> um, home in Echo Park. And at one point she has, if you look at her ceiling, she has gauze that she put up that will, like was too old to be used to help the soldiers. But that woman would not throw one single thing away if she could repurpose it she did oh my gosh wow but just this just this fantastic empowered female leader who said i see a problem and there's nobody doing anything about it in the u.s and i'm gonna do it so you know we try and live her spirit every day in the way that we deliver our red cross mission founders day in may is a fantastic you know moment in time but we we really try to make sure that we highlight that she was very focused near the end of her time with the american red cross on women and children and we still continue to learn lessons from her, you know, even 120, 130 years after the founding of our organization that there's, you know, she says there's always, there's always going to be a need that she needs to meet and she's just going to figure out a way and, and we continue to try and honor her spirit by by looking at our families and figuring out what they need and figuring out the best way to meet that need. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. It's really an honor to have you on the show so we can help bring awareness to all the amazing services that the American Red Cross provides to individuals, businesses, and communities at large. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. If any of our listeners would like to connect with you or learn more about your programs or perhaps volunteer, how can they find you out there? 
So they can go to redcross.org. There's this great little nifty search box. You can put in your zip code and it'll actually take you to your most local chapter. If you are really brave and you don't mind donating blood, you can also put that in and look for a local blood drive. There's always opportunities to help with the Red Cross. So I would just say, just get on that website, poke around a little bit. There's no matter what you want to do, there's a way we can get you connected with your local Red Cross chapter to help you help us deliver the Red Cross mission. Fantastic. Well, thanks again to Jennifer and all of our listeners out there for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to future episodes at Alert Media's website or on your favorite podcast player. We would certainly appreciate you giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Have a safe week, everyone. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.